This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. McCard carrying Basing at this point. Ben Alomar, director of sports analytics at ESPN. Uh, Just next to Big Poppy, be like, he's just one of us, man. <laughs> That's kind of a big deal and shows you a lot about the randomness of sports. Rick Peterson, longtime pitching coach for the major leagues. This is Warden Moneyball's post-game podcast. This is Cade Massey, host of Wharton Moneyball, and you're listening to our podcast. We air live on Business Radio Sirius XM Channel 132 every Wednesday, 8 to 10 Eastern. Enjoy this week's show. How are you guys doing this week? I wish baseball had started a little bit better. <laughs> well, we'll oh, get and out. I'm sure we'll get to that. We have to, so yeah. that's a little bit. Well, long you know, season. That's a bit long of, it's a long season. season. It's a long season. We'll get but to yeah, that. But, but otherwise, I'll tell you all. my story. But then, as I promised you guys, no. just quickly, we haven't talked about what the topics are since I was away for a week. I have so many topics to talk about that are inter- at the interface of statistics, business, and sports. I want to talk to you guys about it because there's actually a lot going on in sports right now. And what I'll do is this is our open air segment. If you'd like, obviously, people call in at one eight four four Wharton if you want to join the conversation. I've got like 10 different topics. I'll give you the sport and you guys just pick one. But here was my story. So my wife's son and I are in San Francisco and I'm talking to my wife. We're waiting for one of these big bus tours to come. And this guy comes up to me and says, Professor Bradlow. And I said, yes. And he said, you're the guy from Wharton Moneyball. And I said, uh, yes. And he says, well, Instantly I recognizable to you. Uh, from a radio. No, he just said my voice. <laughs> yeah, right, right. He just said, God you know, I, I listen to you guys all the time. Yeah. And it was the first time. I've gotten lots of people when I tell them about Wharton Moneyball, but it's the first time someone's come up to me just hearing me yeah. saying, you're the Wharton Moneyball guy. Fantastic. And I that's said, pretty cool. That's really yeah. cool. And this was just a random run it's in shocking San Francisco. that we professors can sometimes find ourselves in such situations. It, no, random it's, people it's know cool. Who we are. Yeah. It, it's, yeah. it's cool. It's fun to do. And so I just talked to the guy about sports for a while, and then you know the bus came, and I got on and did my tour of San Francisco. Yeah, but it yeah. was it was fun to do. That's awesome. Yeah. So guys, here are the topics. So let me give you guys a list of topics, and you guys pick one. Any of them work well. So I'll just go in order that I wrote them: hockey, all right, golf, yeah. NCAA, tennis, NCAA, NFL, MLB. NBA. Let's just pick those eight to start. Hockey, golf, right. NCAA, tennis, NCAA, NFL, MLB, and NBA. Just Which to one troll my co-host, Audie White, I'm going to take NFL. NFL. Oh, you, for, you are I'm going to take NFL for 200, Because, Alex. Of, because of a April Fool's joke played by yeah. Tom Brady? Is that why? Yeah. That's right. He announced April Fool's. Oh, yeah, that was great. People yeah. fell for great. it. So. Oh, what a great way to join that, Twitter. <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah, that was great. All right, so here's here's the question for you. So we all know the NFL draft is coming up. Mm-hmm. We all know the Cardinals have the number one pick in the NFL draft. And a lot of people are discussing him taking them taking Kyler Murray, which, by the way, on most people's terms of talent big board, he's not even in the first tier. He's considered in the second tier, both by Kuyper, McShay, uh, Lewis Riddick. He's not even considered a top-tier player, which they score people. But that's not my question. Last year, as you guys remember, they traded up to get Josh Rosen at number 10. My question, and let me just tell you his numbers from last year. He had 11 touchdowns and 14 interceptions, a 55% completion percentage, a QBR of 25.9, which was dead last in the NFL. It was so dead last that the next person up, which is 10 points away, which is a lot in QBR, was Ryan Tannehill, and the next after that was at 45, which was uh, Lamar Jackson of the Ravens. So he was so far at the bottom. So my question for you is... Both, how do you explain 
both the low QBR, given his high rating, it could just be variance and uncertainty, and the second is, what do you think they could get for him if they traded him? Because that's the big yeah, discussion. That's, that's a great and a lo- question. And so that's my question to you. You guys said NFL? Okay. That's well, my question. Remember, so, number 10 pick just yeah, a year ago. Yeah. Right, so and who's going to go first? I, Shane, you're going to go first? Well, go I'm, I'm happy yeah, to follow up. I have my thoughts on this. Yeah, and I'm, I'm gonna, I'll, I'll just sort of... Uh, By the, the way, tack, just I'm to gonna, let you know, here's yeah. what, thank you for producer Matt Datch, just put on the screen what the trade was. They gave Arizona their 15th pick, the number 79 pick, a third rounder, and a fifth rounder to move up to 10. So to go from 15 to 10, they give up a third rounder and a fifth rounder, which is a lot in the NFL draft. So yeah, what do you I think mean, they're going to get I, for him? Well, I, I, they'd get a first rounder for him, at least, right? Really? From the lowest quarterback in the NFL. In a rookie season, I mean, take, take a look at Peyton Manning's rookie season. Uh, what, so right? I, I mean, okay, like, I mean, is Peyton Manning the exception? Or? No, not. Well, I mean, people who end up terrible tend to have bad first seasons, but you, so there, <laughs> yeah. there is that. <laughs> yes. But uh, that people, means a lot. But, but I'm all, almost everybody so who's I'm, actually ended up so good has also Adi, had bad okay. first before seasons. Before Adi answers, let me say why I gave the data the way I gave it. So we talk about, yeah. like, in some sense, how bad is bad? And I was trying to just give you a perspective that, forget that he was last, because you could be last, but, you know, inches away from the median. But he was last, and just to give you 10 QBR points would take you from, like, first to 10th. Yeah. And it also takes you, like, he's 20 points below the second next from the bottom. So I was also I'd... trying to give you, wait a second, I was trying to give you guys just a statisticians. How do you incorporate not just bad, but a sense of real minus two and a half? Right, so real bad. So Adi, how do you think he's going to be graded? Okay, Uh, I don't think they're going to give him a first round pick for him. And but I have two two responses. I think that he's actually worth a first round pick. So I think Shane is right in the sense that he's not as bad as that QBR rating reflects. And if anyone talks to quarterbacks and people who think smartly about quarterbacks, the people around you matter as much, if not much more so, than who you are. Yeah, I'd like to see what he does without yeah, exactly. the worst, one of the worst offensive lines in the history of football. Right. They had an absolutely atrocious... Brutal. Right. And, so and, so and, I do and, think... And I, didn't they replace their offensive coordinator like 10 games into the season or something like that? Yes, yes. they did. They're, they're fantastic. I remember they so, fired their coach after one year, too. The very <laughs> fact that the Patriots are one of the teams interested in Rosen should tell you something. Right? Shouldn't that it, it sort should. Of, That's a very you know? good... But uh, I will what say, has Belichick ever done with quarterbacks? So let me, let me but, just respond, by, because I think, I think everything you've said about, about Rosen is right. Yeah. I just think that the market isn't going to support it. And the only one who is going to support it is someone who thinks it's a good value, which is Belichick. Mm-hmm. And so I don't think it would go, go for first round, although I think it deserves it, and I think it's an opportunity for thinking teams. So let me ask you a related question, and then I want to move on because we've got lots of topics. Yeah. Give me an argument for keeping them both. Why not keep Rosen? Because let me just say, let's say they draft Kyler Murray. How certain are you that he's going to be a great quarterback in the NFL? Particularly so, with that offensive line. Are they, exactly. Have they made improvements on such a yes, score? Yes, and they will. And they will, making, they will be doing other things in the draft. They have right. lots of picks in the draft. But I'm saying, let, now make an argument for keeping them both. You, know, you guys always talk about the coin flip model. Now you've got two first-round top ten coins as opposed to one. Let mm. them fight it out and see who's the best. 
Yeah, and I mean, like, certainly, if 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 I'm correct, and he, you know, most of what is, you know, most of his poor performance in his, I mean, you know, his value is kind of artificially low in my estimation right now because he did have this bad first season. So I mean, you know, the rationale for keeping around for another season is he improve at at worst you kind of improves Im- and you have higher trade value. His kind of trade value by having at least like a passable second season, and then you definitely could get probably a first round pick. I mean, his value kind of goes down to other teams because you then you know those other teams would lose a year of control of him that's another uh, big deal kind of his rookie deal but still i i think there is some rationale for doing that i just i don't know as a you know i mean you've got a new coach new coordinators how do you kind of balance how do you get those guys both enough playing time to kind of figure out who's who that you want to keep around that's just kind of that's the tough part of it logistically it sounds kind of challenging to me from a coaching perspective but it's not a bad idea well of course if you have an opinion ever have an opinion this is why we have a live radio show show here on sirius xm 132 here on uh the wharton school business radio uh please call in if you'd like at 1-844 wharton that's 1-844-942-7866 if you have an opinion about the josh rosen trade value please call in um so guys thanks for being patient with me about that nfl thing yeah yeah I'm not, you know, I'm a big baseball fan, as you all know, and I watch baseball regularly. Oh, the rest of the sports I watch with much less um, uh, regularity, but I watched quite a bit of basketball over this weekend, and I want to talk about it. All right, so I, I have I have two but two things, but I'm going to start with NCAA, the NCAA, NCAA, of course. Yeah, right, I'm going to yeah, first yeah. start with the Adi Weiner theorem Ooh, of yes. basketball. Okay. Oh. I'll remind our remind, listeners. Way to get specific. I'll remind, remind our listeners here. Remind me of it. Too, I will. Yeah. I'll remind our <laughs> listeners here on Morton Moneyball. I have a question for both you guys. It's Wednesday morning. It's early. We're both. We're all drinking our coffee. We'll wake up. Adi, which one's worth more, three or two? Oh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Three's, isn't that now, your theorem? No, my theorem is is three is fifty percent more than two. Okay, that's my theorem. So let me ask you a question, guys. Which team? And don't don't shout it out yet if you know the answer. Which team? That made the NCAA tournament. Out of the 350 Division One NCAA teams, is 310th in three-point shooting. Okay, that's my quiz question to the yeah. two of you. Do you guys know the answer? I do not actually. I think I saw it being, you know, trotted out as a statistic, but I don't remember because I have no scaffolding. Okay, but do you agree yeah. that if a coach? was building a team, mm-hmm. and you wanted to win a championship, given the theorem that three yep. is 50% more than two, probably having the 310th best, best three point shoot is team not is not plan. a good shot. And nope. by the way, let me just say, um, the correlation, now we're looking back, of course, the correlation between the sh- three-point shooting percentage and who took the most threes was negative on this team. Yep. So the people taking the most threes were not the best shooters. That's right. Okay. I can only assume they're very good at two-point shooting for them to be in the tournament. The answer is Duke University. Ah. Now, the the reason I bring this up, this is an article I sent to our producer Matt Datz early in the week. The article is about how Coach K, Mike Krzyzewski, let down Zion Williamson. Rather than surrounding him with guys that can shoot, Mm. they surrounded him with guys that cannot shoot. And so now what you've ended up with is you've ended up with a team with a bunch of great Two-point shooters, yeah, but he forgot the Adi Weiner theorem that fifty yep. percent more three than two. So what do you guys? But you're think talking about, about an that? interaction effect, which is which is far more complex than my. No, but if you're going to build two. your team yeah. around 
a str- I mean, this is a, a strong classic. two-pointer. Is, oh, look, yeah. people say this about LeBron James. LeBron James, I don't think anybody would say he's a great three-point shooter. He's actually become a good three-point shooter. Oh, but the way you build a team, I know, but the way you build a team right. around a power inside player is you surround him with shooters. So again, three hundred and tenth out of three hundred and fifty. No, that's terrible. But but by the way, thirty percent. How how long have people been talking about this guy Zion Williamson? Like was it was it known oh, yeah. for like like yes. five yeah, he years was ago that he was going to be yes. insane? No, but yes. the, a couple of stats that I insane. saw. I didn't actually. I, I watched. Okay. We were at uh, we were we were at an event, and I was able to just sort of follow remotely the Duke um, game. My understanding is that he didn't even take handle the ball very much in the second half. Well, this is another issue that they talked about in this article. For not for some reason, he's also considered possibly the second player in the draft to be taken after Williamson. R.J. Barrett, Barrett. He controls is the, the go-to guy for Duke. So if you actually look at the game, they just lost to Michigan State. None of the last, I think it's seven shots, were actually taken by Zion Williamson. They were either taken by Cam Reddish or R.J. Barrett. why is that? Was he taking two people and they were no, open? No, I think I just the ball just didn't go to him. Mm-hmm. In other words... How does that happen? Uh, so do you guys remember my theorem yes, of basketball? Yes, I do What's know my your theorem? theorem. What's my Patrick theorem Ewing at the theorem? End of, at the end of the Four game, you need a guy... is greater than three. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but less so than three is greater than two in a percentage wise. <laughs> yes, that's a different theorem. No, it's with, the, your best bi- with the best player is, is your big man. No, no, yeah. it's hard to get the big man the yeah. ball because the other team... I'll say my theorem again. I'm, let me say, for those people that don't remember, I grew up a Knicks fan. I saw them lose to the Bulls year after year after year when Patrick Ewing was our best player. You pressure the ball when it comes up the court. So now 8 to 10 seconds is off the shot clock. Now you're down in college, down to 20 seconds. The ball is rotated around to the big man. Now there's 15 seconds. You double-team the big man. The big man has to pass it out. You just do not have time now to get it back to the big man, him to make his moves. Your best player has to be somebody. Now, what this article also said is Zion Williamson is actually one of the better ball handlers and one of the better guys at beating him off the dribble, better than R.J. Barrett and Cam Reddish. So the argument was, Krzyzewski miscoached him. You should have put the ball in Zion Williamson's hand. He's not a 7-3 center. The guy's 6-7. He can handle the ball. So it was also talking about, it was basically talking about how Coach Krzyzewski miscoached from a statistical point of view the entire now, season. How much do you think that has to do with the fact that there's three freshmen on the team? They're or that Zion be out, Williamson is just really a, like a really exceptional individual. I mean, by the way, thank you, thank you to Matt Datz. Put on the screen here. At the end of those games, in the final minutes of the last three games, R.J. Barrett went 0 for 9 in the final minute, and the rest of the team had three total shots. Yeah. So all the shots. Went to R.J. Barrett, but let's let's let's. So if we don't mind talking about some other games in basketball, I watched the Virginia Purdue game, and speaking of That's three bigger my than list. two, the Edwards um, player for Purdue, who I, I don't follow so closely, who I'd never seen before, he looked like the second coming of uh, Steph Curry. Now, obviously, this is a good game; he's a, it's an outlier game, but that yeah. of course reflects the reality is that if you're say a thirty-five or forty percent three-point shooter, which three-point shooter, which is very good, right? You could easily, easily score you know an extra ten points just by standard deviation, absolutely yeah. without any trouble. That's a great statistical yeah. point because you know what you should. Let's say you take I make it up. Let's say you take fifteen three pointers. Forty mm-hmm. percent says you make six on average, but you could easily make nine, nine or ten easily. Yeah, yeah. so then that's an extra nine, ten percent chance. There yeah. you go, absolutely. Yeah. And by the way, what was interesting about buried. that game with most teams, you'll be buried with that. I extra. want to repeat from a statistical point of view because I was watching the game live. 
Purdue did the right thing. Let me say what happened for those of you, our listeners here on Wharton Moneyball, that weren't listening, didn't watch the game. Are we talking about the final moments? Purdue was up by three with 5.4 seconds left, and Florida, not Florida, Virginia, had the ball. They fouled so they couldn't get a three off. The guy makes the first free throw. Then this is the unfortunate point. The second free throw was missed on purpose, because remember, they're down two. Yeah. Guy on Virginia knocks it literally 60 feet back. So now Unbelievable. No timeouts left for no Virginia. Timeout. And about they, six seconds left. Less than less six than seconds. Six. Like four seconds left. Guy on Virginia throws a 50-foot pass. Their center, who's not a shooter, yeah. catches it and shoots with .2 left, and it goes through. Game tied. They go to overtime. But let me just say. Purdue played it right. Okay, yeah. let me let me actually, Purdue so, so, played it right. So they gonna, didn't get the rebound, and if you don't, they shouldn't have let guy through a wide open fifty foot pass to a wide open guy eleven feet from the hoop. Strategy was fine. Execution All right, was no, not. Uh, so fine, I'm going to actually right. respond because I did okay. a lot of research on this. So this is what great. So we talked about it at our seminar yesterday. Zach Drapkin uh, gave me a lot of data on on this, and and it turns out that Ken Palmer actually has investigated this very thoroughly. This particular the, instance, or just in general, in general, whether you foul uh, with five to ten seconds left, yeah. or as opposed to defend. And the data actually is interesting. It looks almost as if it's a dead heat. There's enough examples of of uh, teams doing both to actually have hundreds of each and it's about 92 to 94 percent probability of winning in that situation and it seems to be almost identical in each in each path yeah it turns out and this is actually interesting i think that i think i'm not getting this wrong zach uh he's, he's listening in the other room i believe that defending is actually maybe insignificant statistically but one percent better and the argument is and what's what it seems to be is first of all this recovering of the of the of the of rebound. missed rebound happens eight percent of the time we yeah. think that it shouldn't happen more but it no, actually I happens eight percent about ten percent i right, would have so, guessed so that. I, I would I, I would have thought my god much lower but it turns out it's about eight percent and the other thing which is which is unusual is that if you know you need to defend against the three point and you can just skip the two pointer because they're not going to take it right it turns out it's very uh, hard to Shoot. So that's the, and that's, that's the piece that Ken Palm wrote, wrote about. Yeah. Very hard to shoot accurately when everybody is just defending the three By the way, point only. Right. Adi's memory for a young man is remarkable because Matt <laughs> Datz, our producer, just put it on the screen. Matter of fact, here is exactly the data: if you defend and don't foul, chances of winning are ninety three point five percent. If they do intentionally foul, it drops, but to ninety two percent. But you're right. right that's from, a frequency. All right, so. Let Not me, a let me, no, no, let me, no, no, I know, but let me stand, <laughs> I know let me stand corrected. Either way, I would have done what Purdue did, mm-hmm. but now that I see this data, I'm glad to see that my intuition is actually wrong. I would have guessed not a massive effect size, yep. but I would have guessed 92 to mid to high 80s. Yep. I would have guessed a 5 to 7% drop, Which is, and uh, it actually important. turns... It's important. Yeah. No, that's important. Yeah. But it's not... But it turns out... Well, again, if you want to join the conversation, there's lots of topics we're talking about this morning. You, too, can join in here on Wharton Moneyball. Please call us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. Guys, I want to make sure we also talk about... I'm going to pick one, since you guys got the pick. I'm going to pick um, hockey, and let me say why. Something very important happened in hockey. So... Only the third time in the history of the NHL, third time ever, has a team won 60 games in a season. Yeah. And it happened this season. So this is the equivalent yeah. of winning 108 in baseball, maybe? No, more than three <laughs> yeah. teams have won 108 yes, games in baseball. Much more. Yeah. Tampa Bay Lightning this year won their 60th game. Yeah. 
The only other times, I'm sure my Canadian colleague Shane Jensen will it's know the answer. It's going to be the Canadians in the 70s, right? The Canadians, 1976, 1977. That's the all-time record of 132 points, which we've talked about many yeah. times. Their record was 60 wins, 8 losses, and 12 ties. The Red Wings of 95-96, okay. yeah. uh, with 62 wins... 13 losses and 7 ties for 131 points. And with one game to play, the Tampa Bay Lightning have 60 wins, 15 losses, and 4 ties. They're not going to break the points record. They have 124 points. But the point I wanted to make is, number one, it's quite an accomplishment. But second, I said, I wonder which of these seasons is the best. Now, obviously I can't compare it to the average number of points, because last time I checked, the average number of points in a season is the same across seasons for every team. But what I could do is I compared which of the team had the greatest exceedance to the next number of points. And it turns out it's not even close. When the Canadians scored 132, the second-place team had 117 that season, so it was 15-point differential. The Lightning have uh, 124 the second-place team right now is 107, so it's 17-point differential. When the Red Wings scored 131, the, beta- the second-place team had 104, so it was 27-point differential. So I started to look. Yeah. How big a differential between first and second is 27 points? And again, I only went back 50 years, but it was the largest that I could see in that 50-year span. I, I don't know if you actually tracked, because like, something like goal differential you know, would, would be interesting to kind of put in historical context. Because yeah, I mean, I we, we, you know, like, right. as, like all all sports wins are a little bit noisy compared to kind of goal differential. So, I did not uh, actually so, so look Shane, at that. Shane, Shane and Eric, tell me what kind of team is this team? Don't look at their win loss record. A really but, good one. You know, I, I mean, <laughs> how does it stand compared to like all time great teams? Well, I mean, I, I don't think I, I don't. Who's I, their best I, player? I don't even know. I wouldn't expect them to be kind of historically dominant the way those Canadian teams or Red Wing teams would be in the playoffs. We'll see. I mean, I think it, it's going to be really interesting because I do love hockey for the fact that its playoffs are pretty unpredictable like even yeah. you know well that's what i was going to ask you guys but here was the takeaway i really yeah. wanted to ask you guys it wasn't just bringing this up yeah. and i'm glad adi brought up you know and you guys brought up that wins are noisy because yeah. they are we've talked about that many times on wharton moneyball when is that this was literally what i wrote down yeah. and i referred to last i'll you know this is not just a shout out to my red Sox hat wearing co- uh, co-host here shane jensen last year the red Sox won 108 games okay a couple years ago, three years ago, the Warriors won 73. This year, the Lightning have, you know, third most wins of all time. When is there, for the two of you, maybe you know it from a statistical perspective, or maybe it's just your gut feeling or statistical feeling, when is there enough data that you, I'll start with you, Shane, you're not going to use the it's a coin flip in the playoffs? Like, how much extra odds are you giving? Did you give the Red Sox last year? Let's say among the eight teams, forget the wild card for a second. Mm-hmm. Among the eight teams, like 12.5% would be the average. What odds did you give the Red Sox last year to win it all? How much above one over eight? And how much do you give the Lightning this year above one over the number of playoff teams, given that we can see that they, that they are the best team in yeah, hockey. So well, I'm just well, interested. Yeah, and, 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 and I like and your I mean, thoughts on this as yeah, well. Yeah, and I mean, like, I think the kind of calculation that I, I, I guess would go into that would be something like what you you did to sort of put them in historical context is you'd have to try and compare them. Like, how much do they actually stand out relative to the teams? You bring up the Red Sox last year at 108 wins, which was the best record in baseball. But, I mean, they, they had to go through the Astros and the Yankees that were like, we both had over a yeah, hundred. So exactly. I, mean, I, I wouldn't. I, I even retrospect. You know, I wouldn't have put those game that those playoff series 
last year in baseball at anything more than coin flips, and even Adi, though the Red Sox had a best Adi, record. Before you go, I just want to give you a, a sense, by the way. Um, Matt Datz, our producer, put the odds for the Lightning winning the Cup, and the next closest, by the way, the Calgary Flames. Yeah. Um, do you want to guess what the ratio is? Or plus, wait, I'll give you a number. The Lightning are plus 180. Plus 180. Lightning are plus, plus 180. So they're underdogs. I know, but they don't have 50%, but they still have a lot more than yep. one over the number yep. of playoff teams. What do you think the Flames are, which are the next closest? If that's, So that's a sense of how much... Plus 400. Plus 700. Okay. Yeah. So they're putting a massive amount... The betting lines yeah. Yeah. are putting a massive amount of weight, and I think probably much greater than any of the two of you as statisticians would put yeah. on yeah, them I winning. Hire. See, so what, I remember calculating some years ago... Um, I think I did it for every sport. Like, how far down the list of greatest teams do you find one who didn't win the championship? And in baseball, you have to go about seven or eight of the all-time greatest teams. By the way, the two teams I mentioned, just to be clear, won the championship. Right. The Canadians and the Reds. I knew you were going to ask me that. I just ran (laughs) out of time. No, no, no. I knew you were going to ask me exactly that question. So so one of the things, so so like the seven or eight all-time best baseball teams have won the championship. If you go to the Seattle, who who, who won 16. Best defined by regular season record. Uh, exactly. Best defined by regular well, season. Well, that's what it is. Back to Shane's point. Right. Wins are noisy. Maybe there are other measures. Yeah. So, uh, and and in, in basketball, I think it's, I forget what it is, but you can do this in each sport. Well, in some well, sense it's number one in basketball. Uh, the Warriors won 73 yeah. and they, they lost. lost. They lost, exactly. Yeah. Um, but last year with, with the Red Sox, they were a terrific team, but they did have to face the Yankees and the Astros. And so it was closer to a coin flip than you would have imagined in a typical season. I'd, I wouldn't make a typical 108 team a, a coin flip. Well, toss. let me give you a Another yeah. relative thing. It shows you how the regular season matters or doesn't. So um, I'll just turn the screen so Shane can't see it. So what would you guess the Warriors are right now in the betting lines to win the championship? Let's remember, they have the third best record in the NBA, and they're, I'll call it a pedestrian, like 54-24. and 24. I mean, that's not saying that's not good, but it's not. There's nothing special. They're not going to win 60 games. They're not an all-time great regular season team. What do you think the betting lines are for them? And by the way, the second closest team is the Bucks. What do you think they are? What do you think the Warriors are right now to win the title? I would guess about plus 300. Okay. Yeah, like like a 40% probability. Well, I, I just went much lower. Ma- plus 300 is about 20, yeah. lo- lower than 20%. Well, assuming this is not a plus minus, Matt, that is the number. Okay. Minus 220. Wow. They're the favorites. Yes. And, wow. and by the way, the Bucks. Who are the second, who have the best record in the NBA, by the way, and the greatest point differential using not your yeah. noisy win measure, are plus 800. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I, mean, I, I don't do math, mathematical models for basketball, but either I'm ridiculously off or there's a huge opportunity here. Well, last time you said there was a big opportunity, you and I cashed in we on did. Auburn over Alabama. But I didn't go by my own data. I went by other people's data. So, Adi, right. uh, you're going to need to do some <laughs> number some crunching because, yeah. you know, I've got some friends in Vegas yeah, that are going to do some betting for us if, uh, you know, sorry, I mean, I, just to ref- By the way, just to reflect on that, that was, an, that was a, the, Clemson. Consensus, yeah, it was Clemson. the consensus opinion of the stat heads in that game was that was that there was a huge gap between Vegas and the statistics. This was loss. Clemson. By the yeah. way, not right. Auburn. Thank you, Matt. It was Clemson, Alabama. Right. I remember, you and I took Clemson plus six and a half, I That's think. Right. It was, and you were like, this is so mispriced. You came to me that morning. Right. Remember, yeah. it was in the afternoon. Mm-hmm. We had a meeting. Right. I literally game, was though. typing a text to <laughs> yeah. my cousin, like, put in a bet, <laughs> a big bet. Yeah, That's right. Won a game. Um, and I don't know what... As opposed to an entire exactly. playoff series. Well, but it was a, that's a huge... Six and a half points is a very big, big number for football. I mean, so I don't... Somebody knows something here about the about the Warriors, and and that clearly yeah, indicates that, that they don't just try during the regular season. They don't season. try during the regular season. So I mean, I mean, I don't understand why people kind of. I mean, I I get it. 
you you point to their pedestrian regular season record as some kind of evidence, maybe that they're not the best team in basketball. But do you believe that? No. Let me tell you what happened. I, don't know. I watched the Bucks. Well, they look really good. The Bucks look good. But let me just say, I watched last night's game. I don't know if anybody knew there was actually a big game in basketball last night. There was a big game, a big game. Let me say why. The Warriors were hosting the Denver Nuggets, 1-2 in the West. Mm-hmm. If the Nuggets had won, they would have been tied. They would have had the same record head-to-head against each other, and actually the Nuggets would have had the tiebreaker. So the Warriors only won by 20. Oh, boy. Yeah. And it was really 30, because I was watched a lot of that game. It was really a 30-point game. And DeMarcus, the Warriors at home? Yeah. Okay. But DeMarcus Cousins decided to yeah, actually decide, you know, maybe put a little effort in this game. So in 29 minutes, he had 28 points, 13 rebounds, 5 assists. And so that ended that real quick. So now yeah. the Warriors are the number one seed. So that, to me, said, all right. So they decided to play it real in this game. And then all of a sudden, they played the number two team in the West. And it was a three. I Creamed understand. The, fi- the final game might have been 18, 20, whatever. It was a 30 point the point you're making It wasn't yeah. a Denver, game. Denver had a lot to gain by winning. Had a lot to gain. And by by in- inference, they played hard and, and the Warriors. This was just one of those. I think you guys there. would agree. This yeah. was actually a meaningful regular mm-hmm. season game because home field could make home court, could yeah. make the biggest difference in this. By the way, Denver has the best record in the NBA at home. Right. And so it could absolutely mean something. So it's actually an opportunity to look at what some of the experts say. You probably will find a very big gap between the statistical models that are produced by, like, say, Massey Peabody. There isn't one for basketball, but it, but if you found one, it would probably be a big gap, say, between that and the ELO score, which values the in-season data far more than it should. Great point. And then there's probably a very big gap Yeah, there. no, and I mean, it, it, it's, it, I think it, it is a fascinating kind of enterprise, right, to sort of recognize that the NBA regular season is pretty different from the playoffs, and, ter- and, and how do you kind of build into a model that the good teams kind of aren't trying half the time well, or whatever? You, I, and and you know how how much you can kind of infer about team quality from from the regular season? It's it's, it's fascinating. I think the other thing we have to think I'm about skeptical. Or, there's much signal there, but here's the other thing we have to think about. I think we all agree that. Their game outcomes are noisy. You even said mm-hmm. it, Shane. Yeah. But here's the thing. How much do we believe? And you've even said this about basketball, maybe of all the other sports. How often, how much, what do you think are the odds a team is going to beat the Warriors four times? You've got to beat them. It's not one yeah. game. It's not NFL. Anything can happen. The bounce yeah. of the football, the lack of a pass interference call. I don't know. Three is bigger than two. I understand that. But winning <laughs> Four. Yeah. You have to beat them four right. times. Yeah. It's just, it's whatever noise there is. Like seven, that's <laughs> the one thing about basketball. At all the series. I mean, seven, you know, so I there's mean, seven. You know, yeah, and I mean, the only team to, that's managed to do that had the best basketball player of, our genera- of this generation, Ration, yeah. and that's not going to happen again this year. Nope. It's so, not, not going to happen again this year. So, well, all right. That's all right, why well, the odds are where they are. That's where they are. So, guys, we've always talked about this. One of the great things, besides being with your friends for two hours every week and talking sports and statistics, which is two of our all of our passions, um, we get to talk to really interesting guests. And this next half hour will be no exception. Um, we now have joining us here on Wharton Moneyball, Alex Hutchinson. Alex writes outside Sweat Science column about the science of endurance and adventure. Interestingly, he started out as a Cambridge-trained physicist and long-distance runner on the Canadian national team. So one could say, unlike us two, three guys, um, a real scientist and a real athlete. As a journalist, he's earned awards for his work with Popular Mechanics. He's written for the New York Times and Runner's World. And he's got his latest book, Endure, Mind, Body, and the Curiously Elastic Limits of Human Performance. 
Alex, this is Eric Bradlow, Shane Jensen, and Ani Weiner. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Thanks a lot, Eric. I really appreciate the opportunity to come and chat. Oh, we're, we're very excited to have you on because uh, we're all into about the science of analytics and sports. And also, um, you know, I've been following running and the analytics of running for a long time, so I'm excited to talk to you. Awesome. Could you start out, Just? we always like to ask this question for people that don't have, I'll call them traditional statistics or econ backgrounds, but physics, in my view, is the great training for anything. Um, could you talk about your background as a physicist and then how that got you into studying, if you like, the science of sports? Yeah, it's, you know, I, I, I was drifting along in physics for, for a long time because it was just, like you said, it's I, I, I didn't know what I wanted to do in life, and I figured... Do something hard that teaches you to solve problems in a general way, and and that will never. That, that's the advice I got, you know, from from people I respected, and I and it, I think it, it turned out to be true, because I don't I don't spend a lot of time thinking about Newton's laws anymore, but the the approach of breaking down a problem and thinking about it analytically, uh, you know, I apply that, you know, in my current job as a journalist, and you know, frankly, as my wife would say, I apply it to, you know, how to load the dishwasher and, and everything. It's just a, a, a way of... That, that is an art, thing. by the way. Just does not, does not understate that. <laughs> yeah, I, I've heard that that's a common source of conflict, so I'm not the only one, but anyway. Could you also talk about your, maybe it's a past life at this point, but I don't know, um, talk about your background as a runner, and could you tell us, well, first, let's start with that. Tell us about your experience as a runner, um, what it was like to be on the Canadian national team, what was your sport, how were your best times um tell us about your experience there yeah sure I, and I, I am i do still run every day although these days it's a it's a shadow of what it used to used to be i, I got out for a 20 minute jog this morning um i was i was a, a good but not great runner uh running mostly middle distances like uh, the mile 1500 meters uh, 5k uh through high school and college and i had a bit of a breakthrough at the end of college where i was got just to the cusp of of starting to make some national teams. So I, I stuck with that through my 20s and made, I never made the Olympics or anything like that, but I was roughly a, a four-minute miler, basically, and uh, and competed in cross-country and, and then later in things like mountain running and road running. I just enjoyed, uh, you know, finding different venues to, to push my limits as, as far as I could. So let me ask you a related question. So, you know, we all know, you know, this isn't the era anymore. I think it's 1951 of Dr. Roger Bannister, where the four-minute mile, obviously the first one to break it. How? Just give us, in terms of percentile distributions, how good is being a four-minute miler today? We know the best milers are sub-350, but, I mean, how good is a four-minute mile today, both, let's say, at the high, competitive high school level, collegiate level, or even, you know, let's call it the senior tour from people aged 22 to 30? How good is a four-minute mile? Yeah, you know, one of the stats that gets thrown around among sort of insecure runners all the time, like myself, is there, there are a lot more people who've been to the top of Mount Everest than there have who've run a four-minute mile. So it's, it's still... Are we saying something about Everest, or are we saying something about milers? <laughs> that could go either way, right? Um, you know, there, there have been maybe half a dozen high schoolers in history who've done it. These days in college, if you want to make it to the NCAA championships, you have to be a sub-four-minute miler, and that's that's... You have to be just slightly better than a sub four minute miler to make it to the NCAA championships, and you have to be, let's say, a three fifty five, three fifty ish miler if you want to make it to the world championships. Uh, maybe three fifty three these days. So, um, 
it's very, very good, but if you want to be competitive at a world level and go to, go to things like the Olympics, you have to be a step above that. And if you want to win the Olympics, you have to be sort of inhuman. Well, and partly it's because of the huge gap between 350 and 4. I mean, that it sounds like 10 seconds, of course, and it is, but that's from a but standard you deviation. You, you, you eliminate so much of the distribution yeah, in, in going from like 4 to 350. I guess it's enormous. I mean, but I, I was actually surprised when you said only 6 uh, was that six a year will run th- no, better no, than no. or six I ever? It's, it's yeah, yeah. I mean, it might be. Eight. It's so basically, there were two guys in the '60s, or maybe, no, three guys in the '60s, and nobody did it till Alan Webb in about 2001. And then in the last five years, it's actually started to change. There have been I don't know three or four guys. So it's it's starting to happen, and and there's various theories that maybe the sort of dissemination of training knowledge over the internet has helped to to get people training harder. So if you've got a talented kid in Idaho, he can train, as, you know, as well as anybody. No offense to Idaho. Um, so yeah, it's it's but it's still certainly at the high school level, it's it's a not quite once in a generation, but certainly a rare thing. So Alex, what do you since we're a statistics and sports show, and you're obviously a physicist that's a former physicist, or you're always a physicist, as we point out, I'm always a statistician. Um, <laughs> what do you what explains the kind of the shift in the distribution, or at least the longer right tail or left tail, I guess, in this case, of shorter time, faster times of the distribution. What, do you think it's analytics and training? Do you think it's the best athletes are now more going into running? There's lots of explanations it could be. What has your research, what do you think is attributable to kind of the, you know, four minutes was the best time 50 years ago, now we're down below 350, the, the, distrib- the whole distribution is shifting. What do you attribute that to? Yeah, so this is a five-hour show, right? We got lots of time. Ah, yeah. There we go. Well, we'll take we'll take the thirty-second answer, and then we'll ask you a thousand questions based on your answer. Yeah, yeah, and I should say first of all that the, the, the distribution has changed in funny ways. That the average, if you go to Boston or something, uh, American marathoners are slower than they were thirty years ago. So the, there's been there's been shifts in both directions. But in terms of the difference between Roger Bannister and now. Uh, 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 there's definitely a difference in technology. Uh, the, you know, the tracks are faster, the shoes are faster, uh, but it's subtle. Uh, big difference is money, professionalization. Uh, there's, um, it's, you know, Roger Bannister famously trained, you know, half an hour a day in his breaks from med school. Now it's like, you know, even college kids, you've got college kids who are taking online courses so that they can live at altitude in Flagstaff training for their entire cross-country season. So uh, th- there's just people tra- are training harder, and they they know a little bit more about how to keep themselves healthy healthy with that hard training. Uh, so I think those are probably the, the, the two biggest factors, more than any sort of huge change in, in knowledge or anything like that. So, Alex, this is this is Adi Weiner. I, you, you tossed something out there. I just don't I want to get back to this for a minute. You mentioned that American Boston marathoners are slower now than they were 30 years ago. Do you have a theory of any kind to explain why that would be? Because in every other sport, there's just been a... No, noticeably large in, improvement. So, what could explain this among this group? Yeah, the, the short answer is probably like Xbox or something. <laughs> you know, I think it's it's the the, the tip of the pyramid of the pyramid is uh, in running, especially. I think is really informed by what's going on at the base of the pyramid, and it's just running was a mass participation sport in the '70s and through the early '80s. And there were tons of people who had no hopes of ever being professional because there was no professional running who were just for fun. They were going out and hammering 100 miles a week. And, you know, 
you can frame it positively or negatively. Maybe there's just more interesting things going on in the world these days. But it's there's just fewer people training harder, and so I think we're we're not identifying or or nurturing the talent that exists. So the, the people who are going to Boston are training just as hard as as anyone ever has, but it, there's a lot of talent, who, uh, talented people who are just either never discovering their talent or not are not interested in running 100 miles a week and are more interested in doing you know uh something that this may be a little interesting so i think that's a sort of a an, the interest of society has changed a little bit and that affects the elite performance now this is uh, Shane Jensen. It's interesting because, I mean, you did sort of mention and like you're kind of, I guess, we're, we're elucidating even more that the distribution does really kind of seem to be changing over time. So you're kind of saying the very, the very, very top runners, I assume, if you start to condition on like, say, the top 10 in the world, those are presumably getting faster Certainly over average, time sure. compared to 30 years ago. But just sort of like, you know, the kind of you know, middle part of the distribution or the lower end of people that are running things like the Boston Marathon, there's just somehow there's not that kind of talent pool out there for that anymore compared to there was 30 years ago. Yeah, in a sense, it's become a sort of bimodal distribution in that there's more people than ever who are going out and running marathons uh, and doing it as a recreation. And it's great. Like, I don't want to sound like I'm talking down about that, but they're not they're not seriously trying to maximize their performance. And there's more people than ever making a living as professional athletes and living, you know, this this very small tip of the needle uh, group who are getting faster than ever. What's missing is the bridge between those, the the sort of the middle of the the guys who were running 2:30 for the marathon, 2:40 for the marathon. There's tons of 3:30 marathoners, and there's a, you know, you know, the, the world record for the marathon is 2:01, which is way faster than you know it was 2:12. Or it was you know two oh nine or two oh eight. Yeah, the, for years I I was a big. I grew up in New York City, watched the New York Marathon. I remember the numbers two oh eight, two oh nine, like ingrained in my head. And actually, I would say that the gap between two oh eight and two oh nine and two oh one is as large as the, if not larger, and I mean not literally, but in, in, than the four minute mile and to what they're now running records. I mean, it's just it's astounding how fast they're going. Well, let's ask in Alex, This is Eric Brotherton. Let me ask you that question. As a runner, and then I want to get to a recent article you wrote about forecasting performance. Which one, as a runner, both and as a physicist slash statistician, which one do you think is a bigger change? I'll go to Adi's question. Going from the four-minute mile to the 350, 348, 347 mile, or going from the 212 marathon, 208 marathon, to the 201? Which seems more shockingly impressive, impressive I mean, yeah. to you? Yeah, so because of... When I grew up in the times that I'm used to, it's the marathon that has shocked me. The progress of the marathons since about 1998, it's been in free fall. It was stuck at 206.50 for more than a decade. And then since 98, it's been dropping fast. And 201 just blows my mind in a way that the mile has only come down, you know, a few, three or four seconds in, in my, in my, or, you know, five seconds in my lifetime. So there's a couple things there in terms of what's, the, the, the marathon is something you can only go to the well on maybe twice a year. So a great marathoner might have two shots per year, and might and the training is so hard that they might only last at the top for three years. They might get bad weather on half of their six opportunities. They might get injured on two of them, and they might only get one shot. Or they might get zero shots where everything is going right to maximize their performance. Whereas a miler will race their, their distance maybe 12 times a year. And, you know, if one race doesn't go well, if the pacing gets messed up, they get another shot next week. So the marathon, I think, was really 
the, the times that existed, the 208s, the 209s, was really underselling what people were capable of even 10 or 15 or 20 years ago. And it's as m- money has shifted to the marathon, people have gotten a lot more careful about, hey, I'm not going to waste a good opportunity, even on a course like New York, which is historic marathon course, but hilly, and you're never going to run a world record there. The top marathoners are now really optimizing every detail, saying, I'm only going to run in Berlin, which is super fast and super flat. And so I think that's that's caused a rapider drop, drop, and that's why I find it's like it's it's harder for me to compute that someone is running a 201 marathon. So we're here on Wharton Moneyball on Sirius XM 132, business radio powered by the Wharton School. This is Eric Brado, co-hosting this morning with my colleague Shane Jensen and Adi Weiner. If you want to join the conversation, if you have a question for Alex Hutchinson, please call us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. Before I turn it over to Adi, I just want to say, Alex, your last description of the importance of sample size and setting records, I have to admit, I was closing my eyes and I was hearing Adi Weiner's <laughs> voice because so many times on this show he's talked about it's a lot of times it's how many coins are you flipping matters so much the base rate matters too but if you flip t- triple the number of coins in this case marathons there's not as many coin flips to happen to set records as there are for miles and so that's why in some sense that exceedance or that drop is even more massive so I wanted to follow up with that because it it sounds like there was a, a breakthrough in marathon performance which reminds me in some ways of the breakthroughs that we've seen in other sports and this is one of the things I think we le- we've learned in Mar- Warren Moneyball that sometimes it's a mental breakthrough people don't realize what they're capable of and then as soon as people realize that's possible then all of a sudden it becomes much more widely um, observed. Did that happen in the marathon? Did it happen where people realized that, you know, 210, 212 was not even close to what 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 human beings are are, are capable of? And then there was this – I felt like in just as a casual observer, that's what happened. It just it got smashed. And then all of a sudden you were nearly, you know, 9 to 10 minutes, you know, faster than it was. And another explanation could be like a technological breakthrough, right? right. Like some, you know, like new shoe or something like that. Yeah, and, and you know, there's a little bit from column A, a little bit from column B, a little bit from column C. There's a lot of things going on. There is a controversial new shoe that came out uh, two years ago that yeah. uh, is is demonstrably uh, faster than than other shoes. But I think there's something to this this mental uh, this this idea that a couple of races changed people's perspective on what was possible. And one of the great examples of that was the 2008 Olympics. Uh, in Beijing, which was scorching hot, and everyone was predicting it, that it was going to be one in like 212 or even or 214. And a guy named Sammy Wanjiru from Kenya, Kenya, just went out, just totally kamikaze style. He went out. I can't remember what the exact split was, but something crazy. He was on like 206 pace. And and it's funny to listen to the commentary in in retrospect of all the the sort of commentators saying, well, he's going to pay for this, and the you know the the rash young man from Kenya is burning his candle at both ends. And he ends up picking it up and, and, and running 206 in the heat at, the, at a time when the world record was like 205. And everyone after that race was just like, wow, everything has just changed in the marathon. So and, I would... and I did an analysis once looking yep. at the first half of major, first half splits of major marathons. And there's a step change after 2008. All of a sudden, people were like, screw it. I'm going to run the first half in 101, and we'll see what happens. I love Sammy it. Sammy Wangiro shows that my legs are not going to fall off. Just That's a fast. great, That's great a great, example. Great, great analysis. Could you talk to us about your recent piece that you wrote about forecasting performance and what the major takeaways from it are? And related, maybe something about what you mean by the word elasticity as well. So, But if you could tell us about the recent piece you wrote, and that would be great. 
Yeah, basically, I, I was I was just uh, cribbing off a, a paper that came out by a guy named Sam, Simon Angus, who's an economist at Monash University in Australia, who applied a, a, a more sophisticated uh, and predictive analysis to, to where the world marathon record is going than we've generally seen in the past. I mean, famously, a lot of people have sort of, let's take a graph of world records, let's take a ruler, draw a line through it, and see where it's heading. And so there was a paper published in Nature in the early 90s then that predicted that women were going to be faster than men in 1998. Wait, do you mean, just to be clear, Alex, before you continue on, just to be clear, you don't mean on the logarithmic scale, which would imply that there's diminishing returns or that, you know, you're actually referring to an, a line? Yeah, no, it, it is on a logarithmic scale. So so they, they you know, they're, they're a little more sophisticated than just straight line, but they're basically taking, uh, plotting the most, uh, you know, simplest distribution they can. So, uh, yeah, there's some quadratic elements, but basically uh, in the modern era, it's getting pretty close to a straight line, and they're just extrapolating straightforward with, straightforwardly without uh, understanding the, the factors that maybe have generated the changes. So the difference between men and women, for example, you can't ignore the fact that women didn't run marathons basically until the 1980s. Right. And so if you draw a straight line, even if you draw a curved line through that, you still have a uh, a, a misleading distribution. So uh, what this new paper did, just, you know, applied some fairly standard techniques in, in terms of uh, prediction intervals. Basically, understanding that when you're trying to predict an, uh, an event in the future, you can't just, you're not really saying, when is this going to happen? You're, you, all you can say is, how likely is it that event X, like let's say a two-hour marathon, is going to happen at a given time? And you can set different probability thresholds. And you get a much richer uh, uh, set of predictions when you, couple those two things. How likely is it to happen and when is it going to happen? And so you know, what this particular analysis found is that a sub-two-hour marathon, it's like a non-zero probability next year out of something like one in 30 or something. But that you get to that 10% threshold where it's like, you know, when something is 10% likely, it's like it's not crazy for it to happen in about in early, uh, I think it was 2032. And so I, you know, I looked into this model and I just thought it, it, it's it doesn't mean that there's going to be a sub-two-hour marathon in 2032, but it's it's a, a really good way of thinking about predicting the future that you have to ask, well, what, what threshold of probability are you talking about when you say it's going to happen? Do you mean 50-50, or do you mean 1 in 100, or do you mean 99%? I guess what I find is very odd about it is what's the probability model to make that even statement? I mean, they, there's a lot of runs of the marathon, so what is the cause of the probability yeah, I mean, so there's there's uncertainty both in in knowing how things are changing and knowing why they're changing. So that you and, and you assume all that in the in the shape of the function that you uh, assign. But then there's uncertainty, like you said, in in uh, you know even if, if something is likely, is it going to happen? And how many how many coins are you going to flip to to make it happen? And so when you have something that's let's say a ten percent probability, if the the fastest marathoners in the world are running a cumulative total of like eight marathons then you're not going to get a very accurate, uh, you know, it's not going to, there's going to be a lot of, 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 of randomness in whether it actually uh, plays out according to the function that you assign it. So, Alex, we have about just 30 seconds left. Could you just tell our listeners here on Wharton Moneyball, like, what's the next big project you're working on? Uh, you know, the, the big project I'm working on is trying to figure out what the big project I should work on is because, <laughs> you know, a, a book is, is it takes a long time and you want to make sure that there's a lot of meat on the bone before you, you dig into it. So I'm casting around widely right now.
Well, Alex, we'd like to thank you for joining us here on Morton Moneyball. Uh, for our listeners, Alex uh, writes out for Outside Sweat Science column. He, uh, he wrote the Science of Endurance and Adventure. He started out, as mentioned, as a physicist. He's written for the New York Times and Runner's World. His latest book, which we all encourage everyone to buy, Endure, Mind, Body, and the Curiously Elastic Limits of Human Performance. Alex, thank you for joining us here on Morton Moneyball. Thanks, guys. It's a lot of fun. So, guys, you know, just in our best, as we're wrapping up the first hour of the show, Alex's point, which was, I think, shocking to all of us, was, yeah, the one tail of the distribution is getting faster, but because of other reasons, based mm-hmm. on self-selection, the number of people running, who's choosing to do it, the average run time is actually not getting shorter, which was faster. To, uh, fascinating to me. Yeah, yeah, no, and I mean, it's sort of like, I think, because we sort of talk mostly about professional sports, we focus so much on that elite tail, we don't think a lot about, in other in sports, some parts, other, other parts part. of that distribution. Absolutely. Well, uh, that, it's been a great hour, first hour of the show. Uh, please stay with us for the next hour of Wharton Moneyball. We're going to talk about one of my favorite sports, golf, and lots of other stuff, including over-unders. Join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball, the show where sports statistics and business collide, my three favorite topics. This is Eric Bradlow, Professor of Marketing and Statistics, and I'm here with my co-host this morning, Professor of Statistics Shane Jensen, Professor of Statistics Adi Weiner, some combination of the three of us, and our co-host Cade Massey, here every Wednesday morning live, 8 to 10 a.m. Eastern. We just got off the phone with Alex Hutchinson, who is talking to us about the training for marathons. And, of course, if you want to join the conversation, you can call us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. You can also email our producer, Matt Datz, at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. And I hope all of our listeners follow us on Twitter at at WMoneyBall. So, guys, as you know, one of my favorite sports to talk about and something, as a matter of fact, it's what I tweeted about last week, is golf. And so we're very fortunate to have, I guess in some sense, one could call him the Bill James of golf analytics, someone who really was one of the pioneers in golf analytics, uh, Mark Brody from the Columbia Business School, uh, again, pioneer in golf analytics and statistics. He wrote the book Every Shot Counts and currently writes for golf.com. And you can also follow him on Twitter, at Mark Brody. Mark, this is Eric Bradlow, Shane Jensen, and Adi Weiner. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Oh, it's great to be back, guys, and thanks for that nice introduction, Eric. Well, Mark, I mean, I can't tell you how excited I am about having you on the show and talking to you about golf analytics because, you know, I was a Harvard business, Harvard, not business school, Harvard stat graduate student, as was Shane Jensen. And I remember early on in my career, uh, we had a professor there by the name of Fred Mosteller who wrote some very early papers on golf analytics. So it always got me interested in the uh, application of analytics in sports. So could you talk about from the days of Mosteller back in the 50s when he kind of toyed around with, you know, the you know drive for show, putt for dough and these kind of analytics projects. How has golf analytics evolved since you started in it and where the state of the art is today? Well, it's easier to answer going back to the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, or or, or 90s. Um, It's it's all a data issue. And we were sort of stuck with a lack of of data for for decades. And it's really a shame that, you know, in the era of, uh, you know, Arnold Palmer and, and, and and, and Ben Hogan and, and, and those players, we don't even have complete scoring data. What did players shoot in uh, PGA Tour events and, and some of the majors is very hard to come by. So we don't have scoring data from the 50s, 60s, and 70s. You know, in, in the 80s, we have uh, putts, 
driving distance measured on, on two holes and fairways hit. But those are the sort of counting stats. You know, how many putts did you hit a fairway, yes, yes or no? And the quantum leap in golf analytics came with ShotLink, which started in 2003, 2004, where the PGA Tour collects where every shot starts and where every shot finishes. And then you can learn all sorts of things about what makes a winner, what are a player's strengths and weaknesses, and the drive-for-show, putt-for-dough, the most kind of famous expression in, in golf is just wrong. <laughs> yeah, and actually, I, that's one of the things I was going to ask you about. Could you talk about that? Because I saw a recent analysis that also suggests that is so wrong. And it's so could you talk about that, uh, you know, misnomer that drive for show, putt for dough, and what people have found now? So the, the easiest way uh, to, to explain it, I think, is if you take a look at, you know, the top 10 or 15 at the end of the season in putting, versus the top 10 or 15 at the end of this season in approach shots or driving, the players who make the most money, have the most wins, have the most top 10s, are the players that are on the top of the ball striking stats, top of those leaderboards. So those are the Dustin Johnsons, Roy McIlroy, Tiger Woods, Justin Rose, Justin Thomas, Brooks Kepka. Those players are ball striking machines, not necessarily great putters, and the great putters, um, you know, you, you know, Brent Snedeker. or Brant Snedeker, Luke Donald, some of, some of the great, and, and there is definitely some overlap. So you, you, you certainly need to, to putt well, but uh, the winners of golf tournaments tend to be the best putters out of the best ball strikers that week. And the best ball strikers tend to repeat week after week. And then amongst that group that are, you know, in the top 10 or 15 of a tournament, the the player who putts the best often wins. So putting can be the differentiator, but you really need ball striking to uh, knock on the door over and over again. So, Mark, let me ask you a question. What, is there a well-established definition of ball striking? Because, again, I follow golf analytics quite a bit. There's obviously driving distance that's fine. There's driving accuracy that's fine. There's now been wonderful new stats, which you see every shot and every tournament, like closest to the pin. So, in other words, that let's call that iron play. Is there an established metric that summarizes ball striking or is it like greens and regulation distance to the pin uh you know shots gained on average like almost like a wins above replacement per shot what what is the state of the art in measuring that today so the the key stats that that all the the players um look at and all the golf writers and it's on pgatour.com and the announcers use it is strokes gained and strokes gained measures how many strokes a player gains or loses on on the field and the advantage of strokes gained is it can break down your strokes gained in a round into different components because it adds up it measures everything in terms of strokes whereas driving distance it's hard to convert that into strokes if you miss a fairway it's hard to convert that into strokes so if a player shoots a 65 and the uh, the average of the field is, is 70, then that player gained five shots on the field. But strokes gained can break that down and say, well, one of those shots gained was in driving. Two of those shots gained were in approach shots. One was around the green, and another one was, was putting. So the four main categories that you can find on PGATour.com are strokes gained off the tee, 
converts driving distance and accuracy into strokes, strokes gained from approach shots, strokes gained around the green, and then strokes gained putting. And all of those add up to the, the total in this example of the five strokes that a, that a player gained. But you can see how the player's scoring advantage breaks down into different parts of the game. And so ball striking, you could say, is mostly approach shots, or you could put you know approach shots and, and driving together. They combine everything but putting into strokes gained off the tee. And so that is, sorry, strokes gained tee to green. And strokes gained tee to green uh, is everything but putting. And that's pretty much what people look at for uh, the best measure of ball striking. So, Mark, this is Adi Weiner. I'm uh, not as a passionate observer of of golf as Eric is, so you're going to have to back me up a little bit. I think your last uh, 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 answer maybe have explained this, but the concept of ball striking, can you maybe explain that a little little bit more more precisely for those who are a little bit more ignorant about the different terms in golf? So there's putting, that I know, because that I've done. (laughs) And, of course, I know there's shots off the tee. I've watched that. um, and that's clear. But what do you, when you say ball striking, which clearly seems to be the dominant, this is how you become a champion, what do you, what do you mean exactly by that? I mean all shots that start outside of, say, 60 yards from the hole. I see. Which would mean uh, tee shots on par threes, fours, all tee shots, um, and all second or third shots. It doesn't matter the number. As long as it starts outside of, say, 60 yards from the hole, that would count as ball striking. Inside of 60 yards, when you're off the green, it's usually a wedge shot, a finesse shot. So people would think of that as sort of a player's wedge game or around the green game. And then, as you mentioned, there's, there's putting. So you wouldn't consider a shot from a greenside bunker ball striking. You would consider that wedge play or scrambling, scrambling ability. So ball striking is, is a big category, everything outside of 60 yards from the hole, say. Um, but it's not well measured by any of the traditional stats. Fairways, even proximity to the hole or greens and regulation are really, really flawed measures of ball striking ability. But strokes gained um, uh, does a fantastic job, basically. Uh, Mark, this is a Shane Jensen. You, you said something kind of during your explanation that really intrigued me. Um, that kind of ball, the ball striking aspect of the game, it sounded like you were sort of saying that it's it's a little bit more consistent, you know, like the players kind of more consistently perform that versus something like putting. Is there an extra kind of randomness to putting just due to kind of like green layout and all kinds of stuff beyond the control of the mechanics of the player that makes it just an inherently more random kind of part of the game and therefore maybe something that is less worth emphasizing, you know, in terms of kind of predictive performance? Yeah, definitely, and always want to sort of break down the, uh, the statistics into how much is skill and how much is how much is luck. And the reason putting has has more variability is just that it's sort of binary: yes, no. You sink the eight footer and gain a half a stroke on the field, or you miss the eight footer and you lose a half a stroke on the field. So that's very binary. Whereas Roy McIlroy, when he's driving. You know, he gains about an average of one stroke on the field with his uh, tee shots on poor f- par fours and fives consistently. Why? Because he's 20 yards longer than the field, and every week he's 20 yards longer than the field, pretty much. So the variability in his strokes gained driving is how many fairways does he hit? He hits, you know, one or two more fairways. He's a little bit better off. He misses one or two. He's a little bit he's a little bit worse off. Whereas putting. You've got a bunch of 
putts in the three, six, eight, ten, twelve foot range, and you can uh, you know make a few more or miss a few more, and the the impact on on your score is is dramatic. Um, whereas it's it's much harder to see in in ball striking if you're 150 yards away. Um, and you're a few feet closer on your approach shots. It's 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 very hard to, you know, have that uh, vary as much as as putting does. So we're here talking to Mark Brody, Columbia Business School professor, a pioneer of golf analytics and statistics. He wrote the book Every Shot Counts. Currently writes for Golf.com. And again, you can follow Mark at at Mark Brody on Twitter. So, Mark, I wanted to ask you, I I have a whole list of, let's call them, you just dismissed already the myth, drive for show, putt for dough. Um, Let me bring up some other topics that I know you've written about recently. I'd love to get your quick hit thoughts on each of them. So one of the things that's always talked about, especially given Augusta uh, coming up in the Masters, is you can miss at Augusta, but you can't miss on the short side. Like, if you're going to miss, miss on the correct side. So could you talk to you? First of all, define what it means. I know what it means, but define to our listeners what it means to miss on the short side versus not, and then what your analysis showed. So this applies not only at Augusta, but at, but at other courses, and it has to do with uh, the pin being cut, let's say, on the, the left side of, of a green. And you could be 20 yards away in the rough, on the right side of the green and it's much easier up and down or it's a much easier chip shot because you have many extra feet of green to work with you can land the ball on the green and let it run up to the hole whereas if the pin is cut on the left side of the green and you miss 20 yards to the left now you're going to have to land it close to the pin and watch it roll 10 15 20 feet further and so you have to be much more precise with your um, wedge shot if you miss to the left of the green when the pin is cut left, and that's called being short-sided, versus if you miss to the right, then you've got a lot of, they call it a lot of green to, to work with. And the difference in the rate of getting up and down is, is dramatic. You how big Yeah, how down. big an effect size are we talking about here? I'm just interested because, you know, I would imagine that professional golfers, by the way, you probably know the stat, but I'll just guess off the top of my head, professional golfers probably get it up and down 80% of the time? Oh, no. It's much It's much less than that. It's closer to 50-55%. Really? Okay. And what's the differential between, let's call it conditional on distance, short side versus green to work with? What's the differential in percentage there? No, it can be as much as 30%. So it's it's huge. It's... it's <laughs> It's, uh, you know, the difference between a 30% up and down rate and a 60% up and down rate or 50 and 80. Well, that's huge because um, that's, I mean, let's just let's be clear, that's 0.3 potentially times one stroke. So that's 0.3 strokes in a round. And if you do that three or four times in a round, that's an extra stroke. And you do that over four rounds, now you've got to catch up four or five strokes on some other part of your game. Absolutely, and that's why I think golf analytics is quite interesting because you have all these risk-reward trade-offs. If you need to make a birdie and you fire at the pin, you'll increase your chances of making a birdie. So this pin that's cut on the left side of the green, if you need to make a birdie and you fire at that, at that pin, you increase your chance of making a birdie, but if you miss to the left, you now made your up and down much, much tougher, and that's where the, the trade-off comes. And so... You know, depending on the situation, there's an optimal target that you want to aim for, and there's an optimal amount to be to be short-sided. 
And you don't want to be so conservative that you say, okay, I'm never going to short side myself. I'm going to aim for the middle or the right, the right half of the green, so I'm not short sided. Well, yeah, then you're not short sided, but then you're not getting uh, many birdie looks either. So everything is sort of an optimization problem in, uh, you know, couched in this, you know, random shot distribution that players have. Mark, that's uh, this is Shane Jensen again. That's really fascinating in the sense that have uh, given that there's this sort of like these all these tra- tra- kind of trade offs throughout the, throughout a round. Have people kind of looked at kind of which golfers kind of show good or bad sort of strategy? Like I, I get it's I, as with all sports, it's kind of hard to separate out kind of the the process versus the outcome, right? Because there's an execution component to every single one of these kind of decisions. But have have people started looking at kind of like the decision making of like where like how particular golfers are go how many chances they're taking are they good chances or bad chances? Yeah, that's I mean, people are starting to look at that, but it's very hard because you don't know a player's intent. So if a player hits a shot uh, starting 150 yards out in the fairway and puts it five feet away from the hole. Was that because they were aiming at the hole and they missed by five feet, or were they aiming 20 feet to the right? They missed it 15 feet to the left, and they ended up five feet from the hole. So you need sort of a large number of shots in order to infer a player's strategy. One place that it's a little bit easier to see a player's strategy is looking at how often do they hit uh, shots off the tee into penalties. So if you hit it out of bounds, you hit it into the water, um, that is something that is pretty much independent of a player's skill level, and certainly at the PGA Tour level. And, uh, you know, chances are if a, if a player is hitting, you know, 4% of their tee shots into penalties instead of, you know, one and a half, it's, you know, pretty sure it's because of they're being too aggressive. So, Mark, uh, again, just going through our list, we just talked about, again, short-sightedness. Um, you've also written some recent stuff about par-4 scoring average. So what is it, and why do you believe it's a flawed stat? So this this applies not only to golf, but I think it applies to baseball and many other sports in terms of in terms of stats. The question is, you want to control for obvious difficulty factors, and if you take a look at par five scoring, it's literally what is a player's scoring average on par fours or on par fives or par threes, whatever it is. And the problem with that is players play different schedules on different courses, so the better players play in the U.S. Open where the players who aren't quite so good but are still on the PGA Tour don't play at the U.S. Open or they don't play at Augusta or whatever. They don't play on the hardest courses. So the players that lead in par-4 scoring average are sort of unduly benefited by playing on some of the easier courses, and some of the better players that play on the toughest courses are, are penalized for that. And we're really not interested in a stat, you know, who played the toughest courses, and we don't want that to, to muddy up something like par-4 scoring. So the first thing that you want to do is adjust all of the, the scores for uh, the, course, the course difficulty, and you get a much different sense of how good a player is at par-4 scoring um, by uh, doing, doing this adjustment. So you want to control for difficulty factors. And just quickly, you mentioned about it for baseball. What do you see? It's Maybe you've looked at this, maybe you haven't. How, what's the analogy in baseball? Is it stadium by stadium? Is that how you've thought about it for baseball? Yeah, for baseball. If you take something simple like, like batting average, well, if you have a player that has more at-bats against weaker pitchers, then you would expect their batting average to be higher. And if you have another player who has more at-bats against uh, 
uh, tougher pitchers. So, you know, it's it's late in the game and it's a good hitter at the plate and they bring in their, their best reliever. And so over the course of the season, that batter who who's better is facing, you know, on average tougher pitchers. Well, the batting, the simple batting average is just, you know, counting hits over at bats and that doesn't take into that doesn't control for the difficulty or the quality of the the pitchers that that batter face. Mark, you you you've drilled an opening here for me to 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 bring in analogies to baseball. So I am going to follow up with with two of them. One of them in baseball which is very analogous to what you describe in golf is what has been talked about for many years now the third time through the lineup effect, which is something yep. that that is exactly sense um um uh, problematic in the way you describe. So the basic idea is that after the third time through, at the third time through the batters have an advantage. And if you look at the actual performance metrics, anything you want, like OPS or the the, the, the one that the stat heads now uses, WOBA, um, if you look at the third time through, it's much higher than the first two times on average. But when you actually look at the situations, there's about – most pitchers average about 30% fewer at-bats in their third time through than they do the first two times through. Why? Because they tend to be pulled in the middle of their third time through. That's when they, they get yanked. So when you're pulled, who, do you, who are you not facing in your third time through? The bottom of the order. Yep. So immediately, there's a bump in these average metrics on your third time through because you are lopsided in your presentation against the best hitters, and it, it's, it accounts for almost the entirety of that third time through the it, lineup it's effect. Great. Yeah, it's, as Adi's point, Mark, is it's great that you're thinking about, because that's why we have this show, Wharton Moneyball. It's great that you're making the analogies between what you're seeing in golf yep. and a very similar phenomenon. You know, I would say the jargon changes, but the math stays the same, and the, the causality, if you'd like, the causal inference stays the same. Same. So it's good that you're thinking about do, that. Do you do as well. any baseball? Are you are you 100% golf? No, I in terms of research, I'm sort of 100% golf. But I teach a sports analytics course that we cover uh, very little golf and a lot of football, baseball, basketball, and some of the major sports because the data is a little bit more more available. You, is this for MBAs or undergraduates? Who? What's the course you have? Yeah, it's, it's it's for MBAs, and also I teach a version for uh, master students in engineering, but. Uh, Kate Massey was a was a guest speaker in my course last summer and did a did a great job and the, the students really appreciated hearing his insights. Well, we you may be getting a separate phone call from me off the air uh, here at the Wharton School since so I run our center on analytics and my colleague Heidi Weiner, who's obviously co-hosting with me this morning and has every day for the last four plus years, uh, we're going to be starting a sports analytics venture here at the Wharton School. So um, expect a call from us very soon. But let's continue. Oh, fantastic to hear. Yeah. yeah, let's move on to something else. Let's now move on to driving distance. So you mentioned it a little bit that drive for show, putt for dough is false. Is it purely because Pro golfers, like you mentioned, Roy McElroy, like it's just much better being twenty yards closer, or it's not that much better. Like, what's the explanation for the role of driving distance today? It's just you know, um, or another way to say it is the effect size for being twenty yards closer maybe is a lot better than the differential in putting. Is that essentially the phenomenon that you've identified? I, I think so. Um... But distance has always been an advantage. You know, Greg Norman, Jack Nicklaus, they were they were long hitters of the ball. And so you don't get any advantage from distance if everybody hits their drives 300 yards. So you get an advantage when you're 20 yards longer than the field. And that's what Dustin Johnson, Roy McIlroy, and Tiger Woods and some others have, have in common, that 
it's the difference in their the, their driving distance versus the field's driving distance that gives them a scoring advantage. And yes, 20 yards longer is hitting one or two clubs less into green. So even if you're tour average with your approach shots, every drive that goes 20 yards further is gaining you about a tenth of a stroke on the field. And if you do that on 14 par fours and fives, those longer hitters are gaining 1.4 strokes per round from longer drives. And you play a four-round tournament, you know, that's, what, five or, five five or six. six-shot advantage just from hitting the ball 20 yards further. So can you ask can and, you answer one question? How do you become that player? I mean, is it physical? Is it training? I mean, if you look at the players who hit it that far, are they they don't look like giants. So how does how does one become that? Some of them, by the way, Some just them, are giants. Yeah. Dustin are they really? Johnson, Brooks Kepka, these these people are big men. Okay. But not, they're, the they're not LeBron yeah. James no, size. Right. But, um, yeah, so that's a great question. So, uh, Mark, how do people, can you train yourself to just, you know, have a faster swing speed and hit it longer? But, of course, physics has a role. A five foot seven person versus six right. foot three. How do you think about that? Well, if you take a look at somebody like Justin Thomas, Justin Thomas is, you know, no bigger than, than you or me, but he is a lot stronger, and he must have a lot of fast twitch muscles. So it's a combination of uh, they swing very fast, you know, 120, 125 or so miles an hour club head speed, and they hit the ball on the center of the face with the right launch conditions, the right launch angle, spin, trajectory, all of that adds to, to their driving distance. So it's definitely the, the players are much more physically fit than, than they used to be. So it's not like they didn't have long hitters in the past, but I would venture to say that Every player on the PGA Tour works out these days, probably multiple times a week. Most of them have physical trainers, and uh, a lot of it is um, selection bias. That you know, growing up, you know, kids are know when they're playing high school and college golf that they have to be long to compete, and you're seeing more of them, you know, make it onto the PGA Tour. So there is some selection there, and there's definitely. Uh, you know, in terms of the, the nurture, that there, there's the working out and, and training. So before I get to talking uh, in the last few minutes about the Masters, I want to ask you one other, uh, you know, theme or, you know, uh, is it true? Uh, people have always talked about moving day in golf. And just for our listeners, golf tournaments tend to be played. They're not tend to be. They're almost all played Thursday, Friday. Then there's the cut. Then there's Saturday, Sunday. Saturday is known as moving day. So uh, could you talk about the analysis you did about moving day? And is there any Anything special about Saturday's the third round in golf? Yeah, so everybody talks about moving day, and I wondered, you know, how do we measure it, and, and is it true? And so the way that I looked at it was how much turnover was there at the top of the, the leaderboard? So, you know, did the top 10 players change more going from uh, Friday to Saturday or Saturday to, to Sunday? And it turns out the average turnover in moving day round three Saturday was 41% and it was only 35% in round four. And this is looking over, you know, many, many rounds over, over many years. And so it's, there's definitely an effect that there is more volatility at the top of the leaderboard in round three. And it's like, okay, then, then why, why is that happening? And it turns out that the course tends to be set up easier in round three than, than in round four. And when you have easier setups, it allows more volatility. The better players 
separate themselves uh, more easily in tougher conditions. And you make the conditions easier, and it could be a putting contest. It could be you put pins in the in the middle of greens occasionally. You have shorter shorter holes, and that allows more people to to score better. So it is a real effect, and I think the main reason for it is the easier course setups on on Saturday than Sunday. Since you're in a business school, we're in a business school, we talk about that in courses all the time. The best students want discriminating exams. You don't want to make, if it's an easy exam, lots of people can do well. Better students want discrimination exams, and that's why I love your analogy to pin setup, because that probably does explain a lot of the effect. So obviously we have coming up, uh, Mark, in just, well, a week from Thursday, the great tournament of the year. The one that, let's be honest, every player waits for this tournament, and that's the Masters. So how do you th- see things shaping up for the Masters? How are you looking, given what's happened throughout the year so far? What are you thinking about when it comes to the Masters? Well, one is if you, I, I would say, you know, don't bet on outright winners in golf. If if uh, if you take a look at the the big or the the house take in in, in betting, um, the the house take is like thirty to forty percent if you just bet on somebody outright to win, and it's usually a bad bet to to bet on the most popular golfers like Tiger Woods or Ricky Fowler or Phil Mickelson because uh, the line sort of moves. Uh, to take into account that there's a lot of money on on the more popular players so i think you have to be a little bit careful about that but i I like to look at augusta and what's different about augusta as a course than than other courses so let me ask you guys a, a question six footers at augusta are they easier or harder than at an average tour course i would guess harder because of both the undulation of the greens and the stimp meter at which the speed of the greens at which they keep Augusta, plus it's harder, I'll use your short-sided one, people tend to get short-sided more at Augusta. So I'm going to say six-footers are harder at Augusta than the average course. And now you're about to tell me I'm wrong on every dimension, but that's my guess. Well, you had all the right reasons that apply to longer putts. But for six-footers... it's a huge advantage at Augusta. Players think 68% of their six-footers at Augusta versus 66 is the tour average. And 2% might not sound like a lot, but it is a big difference. And the main reason is that the uh, Augusta greens are so immaculate, they're so smooth, that um, you don't have to worry about Poana and bumps and whatever. So players think more six-footers at Augusta than anywhere else. But they three-putt 80% more often at Augusta than at a tour average course. In fact, they have the most three putts at Augusta than any other course on on tour. So the three putt rate at Augusta is 5.5% and the tour average is 3%. And that's basically because of all the reasons that you just mentioned, that the greens are fast, they're very undulating. So if you get outside of, say, 20 feet, it's much harder to uh, to get that putt close and then the, to even though it's a little bit easier to sink the uh, the next putt. So, Mark, we only have just one minute left. Let me. I, I since everybody knows that listens to Wharton Moneyball for the last four plus years, I've been a big fan of Tiger Woods and his now his comeback. What chances do you see for Tiger Woods at Augusta? I I have him at about uh, a five percent win probability. So I would have you know Dustin Johnson, Roy McIlroy, and Justin Rose ahead of him. But I have him as the uh, 
fourth on my list in terms of most most likely to win the Masters. And so I think he has. I think that's a pretty good chance, but it's um, still one in twenty is is no sure thing. And if he doesn't win, is it because of what we've seen this year, which is as you know, um, I forget which tournament was a couple of weeks ago. Tiger had more three putts than he ever had in his career. We all know he missed a four footer last week at the Match Play Championship to uh, lose to lose in the quarterfinal round. Is it if Tiger does not win, is it because of his iron play, or do you think it's because of his play on the greens? Absolutely his putting. His iron play throughout his career has been spectacular, and it's very, very good. This season, I have him ranked ninth in strokes gained from approach shots, um, and his his driving distance is great. The driving accuracy doesn't matter as much at Augusta, but putting, I have him ranked 89th in strokes gained putting, so he is putting slightly better better than average, but you need to putt better than that on the greens at Augusta in order to win. So if he doesn't win, I would suspect it's because of his putting. Well, Mark, we'd like to thank you for joining us here on Wharton Moneyball. Mark Brody is a Columbia Business School professor, pioneer in golf analytics and statistics. Uh, you can look for his book, Every Shot Counts. He also writes for golf.com, and you can follow him on Twitter at, at Mark Brody. That's B-R-O-A-D-I-E. Mark, thank you for joining us here on Wharton Moneyball. Thanks, Eric. Thanks, Shane and Adi, too. Have a great day. This is Eric Bradlow, Professor of Marketing and Statistics, and I'm here with my two co-hosts this morning, Professor of Statistics Shane Jensen, Professor of Statistics Adi Weiner. And if you want to join the conversation, or maybe you have an over-under you'd like our producer, Matt Datz, to put up uh, to give to us or put up on at W Moneyball, you can call us at 1-844-WHARTON and join the conversation. That's 1-844-942-7866. So, guys, by the way, I just wanted to follow up one quick thing on Mark Brody. I then wanted to say one thing from the NBA, and then I want us to dive into baseball in the last few minutes we have uh, for the over-under segment. So just to give you an idea, um, one of the things I've noticed, you know, uh, Mark was talking about Tiger Woods and 89th and putting and all that. I was just wondering from this effect size, let's imagine we, I've t- you use my theory, the Bradlow theorem, which is sometimes old people act like old people, and sometimes and every they now act and every then. now and then. So let's imagine Tiger Woods has just one bad shot around, just one, mm-hmm. that costs him one stroke around. How big an effect size is that? So here's what I looked at. The leader right now in scoring on tour is Justin Thomas. Great player. Matter of fact, has more wins in the last couple of years than any other player. His scoring average is 69.4. Tiger Woods is 15th, by the way, at 69.9. Now, if Tiger Woods took one extra stroke around, do any of you want to guess? He's 15th right now. If he shot a 70.9 scoring average instead of 69.9, so the old Tiger Woods shows up just one shot around that costs him one stroke, how far down do you think that drops him from 15 to what? Like 80th. It Very close. It's 70th, and I don't know, you guys necessarily wouldn't know the guy. I know it. He's Ches Reeve if the old Tiger Woods shows up one stroke around. So he's no longer Tiger Woods in top number 15. He's the Ches Reeves of the world at a 70.9 scoring average. So one stroke average. around is just enormous. Is that it's enormous. Yeah. It's enormous. That's why he says 66% versus 68% is a lot in golf. Mm-hmm. It's and, absolutely. And 3.3 versus 5. Point well, whatever it was is Adi, huge. I'll use the yeah. uh, second Adi Wadier theorem. We've already talked three is greater <laughs> than two by 50%. Let's say you're roughly taking 280 shots around. If you gain 2% per shot multiplied by 280 shots, that's going to be a big difference added up even within a tournament, but certainly across an entire season. 
So that two percent, by the way, is your. It's a little bit more than one stroke around. Absolutely. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, right. Yeah. Just multiply it by 70, yeah, and then enormous. and then it's, it's an mm-hmm. enormous effect size. And it was good. By the way, that's why I loved not just everything Mark said, but he brought things back to an effect size that we can simply multiply by the number of strokes, and now we can talk about how many strokes does this uh, you know effect have. Guys, I have to bring it up before we get into baseball. There was an astonishing thing that happened in the NBA last night. Matter of fact, only the second time in the history of the NBA. The second time in the history of of the NBA. I'm at the edge of my chair. Okay. But by the way, I just want to compute, before I tell you what it is, who did it, and who was the only other person to do it, just make sure my math is correct about how rare this is. Do you agree that there are five starters on each team? <laughs> yes. Okay. Indeed. I just want to check. Do you agree that each team plays 82 games? I do. Okay. Yeah. Do you agree that there are 32 teams in the NBA? Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Although Do I don't know how long so far. Been well, checks but let's, out. I know, but let's just assume okay. it's been forever. It's not been, and let's also agree that they've basically been keeping stats in the NBA for roughly seventy years. Okay. So if you multiply five times eighty-two times thirty-two times seventy, you get nine hundred eight thousand eight hundred. So that's the number of, if you'd like, player games there are in seventy seasons mm-hmm. in the NBA. So the following thing has happened twice out of that number. Last night, Russell Westbrook had a, if you'd like, a double-triple-double. He had 20 points, 20 rebounds, and 21 assists. That has only happened one other time in the history of the NBA. Any guesses who it was? I know the answer. Who is the only other player did it one time that's had a 20-20-20 game? Forget 10-10-10, which is the triple-double, or even the magical quadruple-double, which is also extraordinarily rare, which is maybe 10 blocks or something. It was Wilt Chamberlain mm-hmm. in 1968, had 22 points, 25 rebounds, and 21 assists. So the reason I bring it up, not only is it a very statistically rare thing, but am I thinking about this the right way about just how many opportunities were there for, I just said starters, I'm assuming someone coming off the bench isn't getting a tri- a double-double, a double-triple-double. It Doesn't this sound extraordinarily rare in the history of the NBA? It's only the second time ever. And, you know, whether you want to quibble with my math, it's certainly in the hundreds of well, thousands yeah. just of opportunities. You, yeah, yeah. Give me a, what makes this so exceptionally rare? Which is it the is it the composite of the three? Yes. Or is it, I mean, even on one, how often does someone get 20 assists? Not that that's, often. That's the most rare that's one, the right? One that's, it's, that's the one that would be most rare. And that's also, the kind of limiting But you also talk about the composite. And that's what's been amazing about Russell Westbrook, who did it. That's why it's hard to average a triple-double. Because the heavy assist guy... Don't Usually tend to be the heavy sh- rebound. Yeah. No, rebound. They don't exactly. rebound. They don't rebound. They don't yeah, rebound. Yeah. So for someone to get... And by the way, look who the other player that did it was. One who could have the greatest yes. player of all time. Yeah, but yeah. also, people don't know, he was a great assist guy because he got triple teamed on he got every triple, play. Yeah, he was always, yeah. so, and of course, he, he, he got rebounds because so, I mean, he was the tallest for, guy for, for most players, there's like a negative correlation between mm-hmm. these three different kind of totals. By the way, that's why Adi's that point is crucial. You can't just take the marginal fraction no. of each. Because yeah. Let's say 20 points in the NBA. That's easy. That's easy. By the way, he would have had a 30-20-10, except he didn't have a great shooting night. Yeah. Well, that's probably Which, why there was a lot of lot of, of uh, rebounds. He probably got offensive rebounds. He did, but it was also he got a lot of more defensive last night. But you're right; he could have had a thirty twenty twenty, which would have been even more ridiculous. I just thought I would bring it up because it's about base rates, and 
again, whether you say my 900,000 number is exact or whether it's 200,000, 500,000, it's lots of opportunities and yeah. something that's only been done twice. So I thought that was just an interesting statistic. So this was the second time it was done. Second yeah. time And Will ever. Chamberlain did it only once. That's, once. I think that, yeah. in some level, is the more interesting thing. Well, especially since, as you know, there was a season he averaged 50 points and that's 30 right. rebounds a game. And there was a season he averaged somewhere near 15 to 20 so assists that's a game. The, that's just interesting because yeah. he seemed to be the kind of guy who, who had done it at least a couple times in his career. Did he did it, it only once. Once and only in 1968. Yeah. One yeah. time. So I just thought for our analytics fans out there, and I love the point you made, Adi, I wasn't even thinking about it this way, you can't just look at the marginal probabilities. You actually have to look at the combination of these events, possibly, and as Shane said, because there is a negative correlation between yeah. two of them, which is an interesting one. So there's another stat I wanted to bring to you. Are we talking about baseball? Now yeah. we're moving on to baseball. <laughs> now we're moving on to baseball. Now I think both you guys know the Phillies are 4 0. So we are delighted. Right, by but the way. there's yeah. two stats that you may not know related to that 4 0. The first is how many other teams right now in the MLB do you think are undefeated? Oh, I don't even know the Wait, answer. Don't that. look. Oh, don't look it up. It. How many, look. And by the way, just what I mean is let's imagine everybody had played four games, although some teams have played more, mm-hmm. four or five games. What do you think would be reasonable for the number of undefeated teams in the MLB that would be there after four or five two. games? Yeah, two or three. Okay. I would say three is a lot, but two is the average. Yeah, yeah right. They're the only undefeated the only team. Only, yeah. mm-hmm. Well, Which, Seattle's like, but a bunch of teams have played seven, seven games. Seven games. Right? I so, understand that, but still, it's a, a, a little shocking to me. Second, based on, let's just say every, let's say every Phillies game in their history, I know this isn't true, and I'll talk about this in a second. Let's say they have a one-half chance of winning. A half to the fourth is one out of 16. When is the last time you think the Phillies started a season 4-0? Um, oh. Well, it's not 16 <laughs> years ago, or else you wouldn't be bringing it up. Um, so I would guess maybe 25 years ago. Okay. Audie? Oh, God. I'm going to have to guess 20 years ago. Okay. The answer is 1915. Wow. <laughs> so it's 105 years ago. No, I did really? A, yes. No, I did a very simple calculation. That's... Let's imagine P is 1 over 16 to do this. What are the chances that you would flip 105 coins with probability 1 out of 16 and get... One or zero years of four and zero, oh. and the answer is point zero zero nine. So rare, but not such extraordinarily rare. One percent is one a little yeah, less than one percent. What's interesting is if the base rate were to flip to instead of half to the fourth, but point four five to the fourth, the number skyrockets to almost seven percent. I see. That so you they, never, they have been traditionally a bad team. So they, that's probably so they have been. So what yeah, Adi's yeah. done is, which is exactly the point I was trying to yeah. make, so what you could infer from this is either this isn't that rare, or maybe the Phillies haven't been. It's not one half to the fourth. That's a not, bad yeah. premise for yeah. maybe a lot of those 105 seasons. And so maybe what we observe is... But I was shocked. 1915. We're not talking 7-0. and That's before yeah, 4-0. That's the dead ball era. 4-0. But, of course, the Phillies have been around a long time. And there's been – and historically, until the somewhat of the modern era, there's been huge gaps between yeah. good teams and bad teams. So go way back, there was – I just you – you know, know, I mean, I just think, you know, 4-0 just, just doesn't seem it seems like – so like, It right? seems so complicated. Yeah. so complicated. I mean, it's 
I, I would. Four I'm, wins I'm in surprised a row, by that. Yeah, right? I mean, it's 1915. Yeah. It just again. All right. So the, the thing I wanted to do though is I wanted to translate that into it all right. Like, how likely would it be? That's why I'm glad we. I just yeah. wanted to bring okay. up what's so, the statistical. So, odds. so let's 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 segue to something related with baseball. The Orioles have began begun the season four and one. Four and one. Now let's just roll it back. They're predicted to be historically. And an all-time bad team. Yeah. Before the season started, they're they're expected. To, I think their expected WAR is zero. <laughs> no, I mean I looked at the Yankees' schedule for April, and I'm like, oh, they're playing the Orioles and the Tigers and the Orioles, right? You know, and I'm yeah. like, they're going to be like, you they're know, gonna... twelve and zero or something. To and start if they the could season. win less than zero games, l- lose yeah. less than zero, you would have given them fourteen and minus two. Yeah. And so what? Do you, so my, the real question we actually discussed this in our seminar. What do you make of the Orioles, given that they're four and one? Well, we talk Nothing, about or uh, do you do you want to shift their priors? Or do you, uh, well, what, what you're talking about, Adi, is there's two possibilities here. One is they're still the forty percent win team, which gives them sixty four wins, 40, yeah. or thirty five or yeah. one third, fifty four <laughs> wins. Mm-hmm. And then this is just you know out of one five eight, games, yep. you can they gain the gain a game and a half, or we have to adjust the one. I mean, I I do think you know their chances of being a historically bad team do drop. Yeah, you know, because four, so. four, four wins and four wins in the, the column is like you know. Mets wouldn't have done it. Well, I could hear you guys talk about baseball, or we could talk to Isaac from Massachusetts. So, Isaac, this is Eric Bradlow, and I'm here with my co-host this morning, Shane Jensen and Adi Weiner. Uh, how can we help you here on Wharton Moneyball? Hi, guys. My name is Isaac. Thank you so much for having me. I'm a big fan of the show. Thank you. We're glad that you're listening. Yeah, of course. I wanted to call in last week about um, the Red Sox bullpen, but I was unable to connect uh, during last week's show. So this may be a question for Shane as... I know you're a Sox fan, but um, I'm hoping just to gain some analytical insight. So I'm a huge Red Sox fan. And, um, I'm kind of concerned about the Red Sox pitching right now. I'm delighted the about it. Was really concerning to me in the spring uh, after spring training when I saw the the final roster, and the Sox are one and five right now, almost zero oh and six, and the starting pitching is also a problem now. So through the first four games, our starters averaged an ERA of thirteen point two zero. And after giving up only one run yesterday's game, the team's ERA is still 6.24. So I'm wondering what you guys think. I think maybe the home runs are a problem as we've given up 16. But I was wondering what else might be the problem with the Red Sox. So I said yeah. thanks for your call. We'll let Professor Jensen answer. Well, well, I mean, I think part of it, I mean, yeah, it's, it's obviously they had a really bad turn through the rotation. I mean, every single one of their starters like had a, had a bad first game. And I, what I've sort of seen, and this is perhaps something that you can maybe be reassured by, is, you know, kind of there is a little bit of a different strategy to the Red Sox spring training that, you know, kind of teams have shown historically. They really kind of essentially because of a lot of the kind of how gassed the starters were to finish the season last year, and of course they did that deep run into the postseason, um, Coral made this kind of active decision to sort of rest as much as possible, to not really use his starters as much as possible in spring training. And so at least the the one th- hypothesis is that they're a little bit, you know, not they they aren't weren't as ready for the regular season as a team ordinarily would be. And that's, you know, kind of a an optimistic hypothesis because it does say that they will like turn it around. I mean, and I think there's some credence to that because I mean, you know, otherwise you have to argue somehow that there's, you know, there's there's something mechanically wrong with all these pitchers simultaneously or something like that. I think probably a we're it's a small sample size, it's only one trip through the through the rotation. And B, I think maybe they're essentially a little bit behind 
maybe it's the rest of Major League Baseball in terms of how how you know warmed up they are for the season. Well, Isaac, thanks for your, thanks again for your call, and again for people that want to join in, just like Isaac, and now in the future you can obviously join us at one eight four four Wharton. So let's now go to our favorite segment at the end of all of our ca- telecasts here, our broadcast here on uh, Sirius XM one thirty two, our over under segment. It's Wharton Moneyball's over under. All right, guys, since I normally lead our over-under segment, and I'm sitting in this chair, let's keep it going this way. So, guys, I got four for you today, and none of them are going to be about baseball since we spent a lot of time about baseball. Well, I got destroyed on my basketball pick, and I knew it as I made it. Ah, there we go. But we're, <laughs> but we're going to go for We've got four quick picks, guys, in the last couple minutes. Let's start with golf and, you know, maybe an homage to Mark Brody and the work that he's done. So let's take the following over-under on Tiger Woods at the Masters. So... The over-under for today is 10.5 for his finish. So will he finish in the top 10, mm-hmm. by which you would then take the under? Or will he finish outside the top 10, which would mean either he couldn't make, maybe he doesn't make the cut, then he's certainly outside the top 10. Or of the players that make the cut, which I think are the top 40, make the cut at the Masters, um, he's from 11 down. How does he do at the Masters, historically? Well, he's the four-time champion of the Masters. And, um, you know, most people consider it, you know... His greatest triumphs have been at the Masters. And he so, yes, historically he does extraordinarily well at the Masters. Matter of fact, there's the old story, and then I'll go to Adi Weiner. You know, when Jack Nicholas and Arnold Palmer first saw Tiger Woods play at the Masters, the joke was uh, Palmer said, Nicholas said to Palmer, this guy's going to win more combined than the two of us. And of course, he's, those combined won 10. Tiger's got four. But Adi Weiner, over under over. 10 and a half. You're going over 10 and a half. Yeah, I just, I mean. Not seeing it this year. Mm. Well, I, I don't know what the, the sum of the probabilities are, but I think 10 is a really, really, really good finish. And uh, I just think that the 50% of the probability is over that. I wouldn't be shocked if he did well. I don't think it's – I think it's a good good selection uh, for for a boundary. But, we try to do that here and, on Board uh, Moneyball. I think most of ours are pretty good 50%ers, so I'm, but I'm going over. Okay. I'll take Change the ends. under. I mean, I, I want it to happen, so I guess it gives me right. something to cheer for, we but I'll take resolution. the under. I, I do think it's probably a pretty well-calibrated over-under in the sense that that's probably right around kind of where he's expected, I guess, to finish or, or you know, to the extent that there is an expectation. It's 50% of the probability. Um, but, um, but, yeah, no, so I'll take the under. Eric? And, and in my, well, i got to ride my horse. I'm going under. You're I going think, under. I think Tiger Woods has been, his, as um, Mark said, his ball striking's been remarkable. His putting has been remarkable, but not for the good reason. Yeah. But I think he's going to put it together at the Masters. I can't, I'm not going to say he's going to win, but I'm looking for a I top. I hate to root against I know, a, but a let's, guy uh, like let's that. go for a top so, ten. All right. all right, let's move to the NCAA. The only number one seed left this is, is what is, cost is, me, by the is way. Virginia. Okay? So pick any number between zero and one for the titles for Virginia. Now, of course, the odds, coin, Shane Jensen coin flipping model would say they have a one-quarter chance. But let's say I, this is different no, than the over-under on this I mean, sheet. They're, they're heavily favored over no, no, Auburn. I know that. So I'm asking you, over-under a half. I on titles any for number. Virginia. Yeah, but I can pick 0. .75, 0. .99. It doesn't matter. Is Virginia going to win the title? So half a win, half a title for Virginia. Let's start with Shane Jensen. Uh, I don't think they're going to win. I'll I'll take the coin flip hypothesis, I guess. So I'll I'll I'll, I'll take the under, over over on that. Yeah. yeah, it's your turn now. I'm going. I, I don't think they're going to win the title either. So I'm not going to take Virginia. I do not think. I think they will get. Sorry, under. They will get zero championships. That's what yeah. I'm predicting. That's what I'm Shane's taking predicting. the under. Well, I've been all over the place. So I went for 
my my earlier over under was got to write out the number one seeds. Other than number one would win, I thought that was a good pick early. That seemed to turn out. I made a ridiculous pick of three or more number one seeds in the final four. And as I made it, Cade's looking at me and like, "You screwed up, buddy." (laughs) (laughs) He said, "I'm not letting you change." (laughs) Exactly. And of course, that turned out. But here's the odd thing: I will win my pool if Virginia. Wins. Oh, you got to pick Virginia. Oh. So because so it's hard to you know you can hedge. Yeah. Um, so exciting. so I'm going to pick Virginia. Why not? All I'm right, get guys. Crushed on this. Let's go to the next over under, which is related to something we talked about earlier on the show. Point five games played for Josh Rosen this year with the Arizona Cardinals. Oh. So let's go with Adi Weiner oh, first. Okay. Does Josh Rosen play any games this year? Essentially, for the I Arizona mean, Cardinals. Not, you're not talking start. This is get in a game. That's fine. You got, you gotta be, you're basically betting on a trade, right? A trade or Kyler Murray is drafted. Kyler Murray stays yeah, healthy and I, wins the starting spot. And Josh Rosen never plays. Okay. Okay. Wow. It's just actually you're supposed to. We've been, we've been going. Uh, this is right, a, I'll go first. You, you need to start. Yeah, I will one. go first. Gonna, I, I no think clue. he's traded, so I'm going under. Adi I'm going to go under also. Yeah, I guess i got to take the under, too. I think it's greater than 50% he's traded. All right, so. so there we go. And that, by the way, what Shane just said is he doesn't care. If that's over 50%, you don't have to do any more math, yeah, yeah, right? Because yeah. the best expected bet then would be to take the under. Yeah. Guys, we have 30 seconds left. Last one. Let's go to the NBA. Total of all the rounds in the NBA finals, go path to the finals, how many games will the Warriors lose in total over under six and a half? Last year, by the way, they lost five. Three of them were against the Rockets. Let's go to Adi Weiner. In the last 15 seconds. Over. Oh, over. They're going to lose more than six yeah, and a half. I think they're weaker this year. They're going to win it, but they're going to, they're weaker. Shane I have, I have exactly what Audie said. I can't, I can't improve on that. I'm taking the over. I'm going the under, but not for the reason you guys think. I think they're going to get eliminated by the Rockets this year. Oh. And therefore, I'm taking the under because I don't think they're going to play enough games. But that's for a different reason. So again, this has been two hours on Wharton Moneyball. I'd like to thank my co-hosts, uh, Shane Jensen and Adi Weiner. I'd like to thank our producer, Matt Datz, and our associate producer and sound engineer, Danielle Bruno. I'd like to thank our guests, uh, Alex Hutchinson and Mark Brody. This is Eric Bradlow, professor of marketing and statistics. Between now and next week, enjoy your sports, enjoy your statistics, enjoy your business problems. We'll see you next week here on Wharton Moneyball. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.